This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 142. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. And Riley is the guy who hates flip-flops, and I can't say I blame him. I am Jacob Paulson. And Jacob is the man who used to be a wildly successful door-to-door salesman. Uh, wildly successful, maybe stretching it a little bit, Riley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, from what you've told me, I, it sounds like you did pretty well at, at times. <laughs> People are going to think that I, like, I'm, a, I'm a bragging guy, you know, like all about my awesomeness, but... Uh, I did okay, but obviously not good enough to keep doing it forever, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, speaking of flip-flops, yeah, uh, I hate them. I don't know what it is, but I, I can't stand the little thing between your, your toes, you know? I don't even know what you call that. Um, I can't stand having, you know, no more than like quarter inch or three-eighths of an inch of foam in between my foot and the ground. Uh, and they're not very tactically wise to wear in my opinion yeah i can't run i can't i mean yeah i for me flip-flops exist only so that when i'm taking a shower in south america i don't have to put my feet on what could be a very bacteria heavy floor of a shower (laughs) yeah yeah well anyway today's episode by the way uh we are talking about how to look and act like a pro in other words, what are some of the things that differentiate someone that is an amateur from a professional? Because obviously, we'd, well, I hope, I hope we would all like to uh, be pros at Concealed Carry and not amateurs. So anyway, today's episode is brought to you by Guardian Nation. We mentioned this in uh, the most recent episode, episode 141, our news episode. We talked about Andrew Bronca being our special guest for this month's Guardian Nation live broadcast, which uh, by the time you hear this episode, it's it's going to be very soon. Uh, it is Thursday, July 27th. Depending on when you're listening to this, it could be tomorrow. It could be today. <laughs> or maybe you missed it already. I'm sorry. But you don't want to miss it. So to do that, or to be a part of that, you want to make sure that you have checked out Guardian Nation and that you are a member of the fastest growing and most awesome, I I might add, tribe of self-defense shooters anywhere. Members receive not only access to these special broadcasts with top people like Andrew Bronca, I'll tell you a little bit more about him in just a minute, but also you get an access or get access to all past recordings of Guardian Nation live broadcasts that we have done, including folks like Kyle Lamb and Mike Hughes and Chris Chang and Rob Pincus and Rob Latham. I mean, top, top shooters, top guys. And we've got more great ones coming here very soon. So don't miss Andrew Bronca because he is a guy that wrote the book, The Law of Self-Defense. And it breaks down the law better than I think anything out there. He is the man where it comes to understanding and teaching and and using the law correctly and properly in self-defense uh, situations and shootings. So the Guardian Nation live events, one, one thing that's really great about them is you're, you have the opportunity to ask questions and get answers directly from these people live. And if you've got questions you'd like to ask about the law to Mr. Bronca, you want to be there we're, as we're recording this, it's Wednesday, July 26th. So you want to be there tomorrow, July 27th, 
Thursday evening, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, so you don't miss Andrew Bronca. That's just one huge benefit of being a member of Guardian Nation, besides the quarterly box that will be shipping here soon, and everything else that comes along with it. Check it out now. Go to guardiannation.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by the Pig Lube Rifle and Handgun 30-Piece Cleaning Kit, which is awesome, and by Live Fire Drill Cards. So, there you have it. There's our sponsors. We hope you'll check them out. Check out those products. We think that you'll find uh, great value in them. So, Jacob, let's talk about how does one differentiate themselves from being an amateur? Meaning, how does one become a pro in concealed carry? Well, the first thing I'd like to clarify is this, this is not just about how to appear to be a pro. This is how to be a pro. I mean, there, there are some things that when we're at the range and we're watching other people, we can pick out, right? Uh, that dude's not been doing this very long or he's not had a lot of good training or whatever. And, and that doesn't necessarily, it's not about judging them like, oh, what a moron. It's about, you know what? They need more. They need more practice. They need more training. And so, if you're listening to this and you're newer, or maybe you're not newer uh, to, to the game, but maybe you haven't obtained as much training as you think you need or you do need, you know, this is meant to be some ideas that would guide you in kind of having a sense for, you know, I, I really need to be focused on getting really good at this thing, or things, we're going to talk about several things, not just so that I can look better, but also so I can perform better. So it's not just about appearances. It's it, the, the appearance is a byproduct of a skill. And so we're going to talk about what some of those skills are. Yep. In fact, we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about nine things that separate amateurs from the pros. So hopefully you can get something out of this. And if, uh, you know, one of these things we're going to cover, a lot of them are skills. There's a few other um, disciplines as well. But uh, if you're not already mastering some of these things, well, now you got an opportunity to, to have that pointed out to you and you can identify them and correct them and uh, be a better CCWer because of it. So, First up, we're going to talk about uh, one that a personal friend of ours, Jacob, uh, recently we were shooting with, and they kind of demonstrated this tendency, uh, and it's not the first place I've seen it. In fact, it's far from it. Uh, Not the first person I've seen do it either, right? And that is swinging the gun down or sometimes around. Meaning kind of like a lackadaisical approach to like muzzle control discipline. You know, uh, what I mean is when you watch a pro shoot, they always handle the gun with the utmost respect. They always know exactly where the muzzle is pointed and they maintain a very, you know, confident and firm control of that muzzle no matter what they're doing. And that, that, that direction is always downrange. If you're on a range, right, if there's, if there's targets, the muzzle is always pointed downrange. And maybe, maybe down, uh, you know, depending on the situation. But, yeah, it's always, always, always pointed in a safe direction or an appropriate direction. If this was a tactical environment and we were doing, uh, uh, you know, maneuvers through a building with multiple uh, people, you know, team tactics, uh, you would always maintain a very, like I said, confident and firm and solid control of that muzzle uh, as to where it is. So let me describe the situation that we experienced recently. So we're at the range and this friend of ours 
is shooting. And when they got done shooting, like let's say they were shooting, I don't know, five shots or 10 shots or what, you know, we, we did a couple of drills together and things and they would get done doing the drill. And as soon as they were done, they would kind of just very casually sort of drop the gun down, you know, basically swinging their arm. And it kind of freaked out everybody that was there and was involved a little bit, uh, you know, because I think we all felt like by seeing this arm swing, you know, kind of like if someone was swinging their arms while walking very, uh, uh, you know, a very wide swinging arc. Uh, that's kind of how they were bringing this gun down. And I think that the feeling is that we had was that as the arm was swinging down, that it might continue swinging towards the rear, which is where people were standing. And that was frightening. And, and you definitely just don't ever see a professional do anything like that. A professional is going to be, okay, I'm either at the ready position, uh, I'm either pointed at the target, or I'm at a high compress ready, or I'm at a low ready. You know, there's, there's, there's positions that the gun is always in based on the situation that are appropriate for that situation. But a lot of these things come, I think, after the shooting series has been done. So, so you know, you might be really deliberate. You're trying really hard. You think about the draw stroke. You draw. You come up on target. Boom, 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 boom. You get done. And this is kind of where, like, the boys are separated from the men, if I can use that really awful cliche. Sorry, ladies. But but I think, it, you know, that's the point where it's like, you know, the professional, when he's done, he's going to bring it back into a compressed ready He's going to then, you know, in, in almost reverse order of the draw stroke, put that sucker back in the holster or set it down, and he's gonna he's gonna maintain that that muzzle direction. But the amateur is kind of like, yay, I've I've achieved, I've accomplished, I'm done now, and any sense of fo- sense of focus or purpose is kind of disappears, and either the gun, you know, the hand turns with the body, or as you said, it kind of swings down like we like we saw the other day, and and it it's just kind of like I'm done now, you know, that the focus is gone. Mm, yes, and by the way, I'm, I am going to call you out for using the the, the phrase you used, uh, separating <laughs> the men from the women. A better one would be separating. The I men said men from the boys. From the boys. Oh, I said men that? from boys. That's what oh, I said, I, and then I said sorry, women, because they may not identify with. Oh, them. I totally missed. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Nice try, though. Nice try, making <laughs> making me worse than I am. <laughs> A little gotcha moment. <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's exactly what it is. Is uh, with a less with a less experienced shooter, uh, they will perhaps maybe be very focused during the time that they are performing that drill or performing that exercise or shooting the gun, and then the brain shuts off. And that's what we can't do. That's what separates a professional from an amateur is that the professional is always switched on. And that's what we got to make sure we, we do because, because where accidents a lot of times happen too is when the brain, you know, shuts off as far as being aware of the muzzle, being aware of the gun, being aware of what we're doing and being focused, you know, on what we're doing and moving with purpose. That's something we should always do uh, in a tactical environment or at the range with a gun. We should always move with purpose. And if we're doing so, that means we're focused on that purpose, on what we're doing, what we're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. So what's number two, Jacob? Vocabulary. And there's a lot of things that we could group into this, but I'll start with simple, you know, vocabulary related to the ammunition we put into the gun. So it's one of those Jacob pet peeves. But when I'm at the range and someone says, hey, anybody got any more bullets? I'm tempted to say, yeah, like if you go down there, you can get some out of the the backstop, you know? 
Like, or, or I could, I could toss them down there. Like they'd come really fast because we don't put bullets in a gun. Well, I mean, it's one piece, but we put rounds into the gun, right? Bullets come out the front, shells come out the back. And so the use of those three words is the first thing that to me always identifies the amateur from, from the pro is, you know, if, if you use the three terms, I put rounds into the gun, bullets or cartridges, or cartridges it depends on, yeah, either would be fine. Ra- uh, bullets come out the front, shells or shell casing or casings come out the back. If you use those words right, you sound awesome. But man, I, it's like it's like saying you put toast in a toaster. It's like one of those kinds of things that like some people may not be nitpicky on, but to me, the red flag goes up. Some other words would be clip versus magazine. Oh yeah, and no how often do we see that? I mean, we see it in comments made on our website, on various articles. You know, someone commenting something about you know I don't know carrying a spare clip, and it's like. Uh, what kind of clip? Like a hair clip? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, for those of you who are curious, like a, a clip is a thing that can hold ammunition, but it's not spring-loaded. So that what separates in terms of like technical vocabulary, a clip from a magazine is a magazine is a spring-loaded thing that ammunition goes in, and, it, and the spring pushes the ammunition into a position. A clip, on the other hand, is something that can hold ammunition in a string, but there is no spring. If that if that helps, so so like a lot of, like a belt fed gun, you know, might use a clip. You might you know push a clip in with the ammunition, but there's no spring on that thing. If that is helpful, or if it makes sense. I, I was thinking more like uh, an M1 Grand, you know, rifle. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That's two, a great example. I mean, that's yeah. a clip. That's a clip. Uh, you'll hear people refer to stripper clips, uh, which are you know just little clip devices that hold typically about five rounds because you know in the early days of of uh, uh infantry battle rifles where they were still using bolt actions and things a lot of times the magazine capacities on those were five occasionally you found some that were 10 uh and you could dump you know two clips worth into but those stripper clips were just that where they were a device to quickly throw rounds into the a magazine of a of typically a rifle uh and the clip simply held those rounds together in a fashion to to make that feasible another example would be moon clips moon clips are used with revolvers mm-hmm. and uh they're kind of like a speed you know loading device for a revolver where the moon clip itself holds uh and there's 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 full moons and there's half moon clips uh if you're using a half moon you're, you're going to use two of those to load the revolver uh full moon clip is is just what it sounds like it's going to you know say if you got a six shot revolver it's going to clip on there six rounds and you dump out the empty casings out of your revolver and throw in uh, a full clip of uh you know six rounds or sometimes there's seven or eight round revolvers as well so there are clips but they are not the same thing as magazines. And most of the time when we're talking about uh, concealed carry and carrying a spare, you know, carrying spare ammo, most of the time we're talking about magazines. Mm-hmm. Semi-automatic handguns use magazines. They are essentially a box, like you said, Jacob, with a spring that pushes rounds. To, they feed it to the top, to the feed lips of the, of the magazine. And uh, they do so one at a time. You know, and I'll add, like, those, those are some pretty basic things that really separate, you know, the, the pro from the amateur. There's tons of other vocabulary. Like, if you feel intimidated by, you know, concealed carry and gun vocabulary, don't feel bad. Um, just don't use things wrong, you know? Like, the, the, you know, we've given you a couple of very tangible examples that, to me, stick out. But I think that, you know, 
there's a lot to learn when it comes. I mean, you know, you're going to hear people say things like, well, that's an SADA gun or a D or wait, I just said it backwards. That's a DASA gun. Uh, or, or people are going to say things like, well, did you check your mag well? And you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to hear things like this. And, and, you know, if you haven't been around guns for a while, you're going to be like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. And it's, it's okay to not always know and just ask. Like, if you don't know, ask, Google it, find out, learn what that is and use it correctly. But don't assume that what you picked up on, on TV is, is right. Right. Let me give you a couple more quick examples. Uh, number, another good one would be uh, someone talking about an AR-15 rifle, uh, which I typically refer to those frequently as carbines because that's Ooh, usually what example. they are. I mean, it, they're not always carbines. You could have an AR platform rifle that is a 20 or 24 inch, you know, long barrel and it's a more of a precision, you know, sniper uh, thing, which is not a carbine. But but most often when we think AR-15, we think of a carbine length rifle that's semi-automatic but too often we hear people refer to them as assault rifles and now why we're making a big deal about correct terminology and vocabulary within the industry is because we already have a bunch of anti-gunners out there gun gun grabbers that use the terminology incorrectly to begin with most of the time and a lot of times if we use incorrect terminology it only adds fuel to the fire of you know of ignorance and Especially if we use, if we within our community use the term assault rifle about an AR-15, that is, you know, then we're just, we're falling right into, uh, we're just getting right into bed with the, the gun grabbers uh, as far as that terminology is concerned. Here's another one too, um, and that is referring to the grip on a handgun as the stock. Stock Ooh. is on a rifle, uh, but a grip would be on a handgun. So Now here's another one for you, silencer versus suppressor. So silencer is a term that's used in, in, in the actual law in the uh, National Firearm Act of 1934. And so it's not necessarily incorrect, but we do have some sticklers in this industry that will yell at you and say, it doesn't silence it, it only suppresses the sound. And so you'll find that more often than not, the, the more accepted term is a suppressor than a silencer. Yeah, you know, and that's a great point. Uh I, there was a time where I was kind of one, one of those sticklers was like suppressor, suppressor, suppressor. But then one of my favorite suppressor companies of all time came along. That is Silencer Co. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I, I, I tend to throw that one around uh, both both ways. Silencer yeah, and I don't, suppressor kind of yeah. interchanging it. You know, legally, that is technically what it is called is a silencer. But it is important, I think, that we distinguish or di- differentiate the fact that a silencer does not, in fact, silence a shot. It only suppresses and reduces um, the decibel rating of that shot, if you will, to an acceptable uh, level that is safe for yeah. hearing. So I, I just generally, I use them together. I, I almost always will say silencer, suppressor. <laughs> so so that the people, the suppressor, like crazies can say, oh, you know, he's, he did say suppressor. And the, everybody else will know actually what I'm talking about if they've never heard of a suppressor before. A silencer suppressor. Yeah, silencers <laughs> and suppressors. It, it's it's a new term, Jacob. Yeah, that's right. I made that up. Yeah. It's a silencer suppressor. This is kind not your like average a, suppressor. This a, is a silencer suppressor. Kind of like a uh, clipazine. <laughs> 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 Which, that's a little bit of a shout out to uh, uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, YouTube channels out there. And uh, I don't know if anybody watches, uh, what is his name? Matt, I think. Uh 
Matt V2009 or something. He, he throws out some really funny stuff. Anyway, good times. All right, so here's the one. I can tell lesser experienced shooters or amateurs from pros. You could shoot one round. Chances are you could shoot one round, and I could, I could tell a lot about you as a shooter. Uh, now some of that comes from years as you know of of practice and experience as a uh, instructor, um, having watched a lot of people shoot and being involved in teaching people how to shoot. Um, and also start studying the art of shooting. Uh, for me, it really is that it is a lifelong study for me, and I do think of it as much of uh, as like an art form. When I see a amateur shooter uh, shoot, a lot of times I see issues with grip, mm. and there's a, I mean, there's a lot of different things that, that you see, and some of them are hard to describe, uh, you know, through a podcast. Sometimes it's easier just to demonstrate, but, but a big obvious one is the classic cup and saucer uh, grip. And that's where basically your support hand is like a saucer plate, and your shooting hand, your strong hand that's holding the grip of the gun is set upon that like like the cup so cup hence the term cup and saucer uh you know basically you're using your support hand as a platform to rest the gun on but it does zero you know for you it does nothing for you in terms of controlling that gun uh and and its recoil yeah and and i think you know there's varying degrees of that yeah that's how i describe it to students i mean you might just totally cup and saucer the gun but any any degree of taking that support hand and letting it kind of slide down you know either or either slightly or dramatically down from the side of the gun toward the base of the gun is is, is a huge red flag um i'll throw out another one and that is random weird stuff i see with thumbs you know yes. there's there's a there's a variety of correct ways to hold a gun and you know that are, that are generally considered acceptable. But there's so many weird things you see with thumbs. There's three that I see all the time. The one I call the thumb war move, where you know, one thumb is like holding down the other thumb. And then there's what I call the thumbs in the air move, right? Where both airs are just completely sticking in the air. Both thumbs are sticking up in the air, just out there catching a breeze, doing nothing at all to help with the firing of the gun. And then there's the butterfly move, which we talked about the other day when we talked about slide bite, where, you know, my strong thumb has come around the rear back strap of the gun under the beaver tail. And so my, my, stro- my uh, support thumb thinks it should do the same. It comes around the backside as well. Uh, and, and so they're, you know, effectively, if you, if you move the two thumbs, it looks like a butterfly. And so those are three huge red flags. I, and when I see those, it's like, yeah, no, we don't do that. Yeah, and here's one more that is a real obvious uh, dead giveaway. And that is anytime I see any sort of space in between the beaver tail of the gun that's that little um i can't think of anything to call it other than a tail you know on the back end of the gun uh just below the back of the slide and at the top of the rear of the grip you got that little tail and a lot of times referred to as a beaver tail anytime we see space in between the beaver tail of the grip and the webbing of the hand Mm-hmm. To me, that, that 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 separates a pro from an amateur because that means yeah. they're not gripping the gun high enough, uh, and that means less controllability, which means they're less accurate if they're trying to shoot fast or they will shoot too slow uh, or slower than they really need to because they they don't have good you know recoil management of that gun. Yeah, yeah, but bore axis talking about vocabulary, we could we could get off in the weeds on this one. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Good, good calls about about grip. So a proper grip, and it doesn't. You know, there's a, there's there's little variations of a good grip that we would call acceptable or debatably good or bad. To, you know, and and you can still be a pro. But these things we've described totally red flag you as yeah you you don't have good training or skills. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so what's uh, number four? Stance, stance, and there's a lot of little aspects to stance. Um, you, the uh, two things that stick out to me really quickly when I see people with locked knees, that that's a red flag. Anytime I see someone knees completely locked, I just think, yeah, that that's just not how we shoot. Like no one ever taught you to do that uh, who knew what they were doing. And the other one is that the the rear lean, right? The leaning back or, you know, being perfectly perpendicular as opposed to what we should do, which is a slight lean forward into the gun. So those, those two are my big red flags on stance. Yeah. And I agree with you there on those uh, failing to lean forward, at least slightly is, is a big one. Uh, it's so common to see shooters, you know, anytime, anytime I go to the range, my local range just down the street from me, the, where I'm a member just for the sake of it's convenient and it's really close. Uh, we also, you know, our members uh, as a company out at, uh, at, a, at an outdoor range where we do a lot of our training videos and things and courses and, and whatnot. But at this indoor range, I go in there, you know, a couple times a month and for, you know, quick practice sessions. And inevitably, as I look up and down the firing line, somebody is leaning back as they shoot their handgun. And uh, that just isn't good. That It isn't right. Uh, you gain nothing from having a, a, a stance where your center of gravity is towards the rear. Uh, you have less recoil management. Uh, you will be unbalanced. And it's not a fighting position either. It doesn't look confident. It doesn't look strong. If that's how you're going to stand when a threat is attacking you, and especially if you're trying to posture, okay, meaning like you're at the very least, if you're drawing your gun and you're you're getting ready to make that decision to shoot, but you're hoping you don't have to shoot and you're hoping that they're going to back down just before that moment comes, you're not going to likely convince them that you really mean business if you don't have a good, solid, aggressive stance. Nor will you be able to consistently get repeat shots on, on target quickly. <laughs> right. Because it, it, what happens yeah. is, is is the recoil has nowhere to go. So your whole body kind of, you know, lean, it, you have to absorb it all and, uh, and you have nowhere for that to go. And so the, the hands tend to, uh, take more of that recoil so mm -hmm. the gun rises a little bit higher which means you are you have more recoil taking place and takes longer for you to get back on target for follow-up shots yeah let's let's talk quickly riley about uh, weaver versus isosceles so kind of the two generally accepted you know core stances and they have to do with kind of whether or not your chest is square with the target or if it's at an angle and they have to do with kind of the position of, of the feet on the ground. So I, I don't go to the range personally and see someone in a weaver and I'll clarify a proper weaver and think they're an amateur. I just think that's the stance that they've been using. That's the stance they were taught or that's how they choose to shoot. And you know, it may or may not be what is more broadly accepted as, as preferable today, but I don't, I don't pick them out as an amateur. I just say, nah, that's probably not the best stance in my opinion. Um, but I do see a lot of things that are not proper isosceles and are not proper weaver that are just huge red flags. I'll give you an example, and that would be what I call the uh, the, the forward rear isosceles, where you know chest is square with target, 
but one foot is in front of the other. Do you see that? That that every time I see that, it just drives me crazy. I do see that, and you know what? I have no problem with a stance like that. Uh, partly because I sometimes might find myself in a stance like that, and the reason why, uh, while while generally I might stand there square to the target in a in a classic isosceles stance, uh, feet you know shoulder width apart, feet facing and square to the target, upper body square to the target, arms fully extended, classic isosceles, right? While I generally will shoot in that position, think about it if you are shooting while you're on the move. Or sure. you you you're moving and shooting, and maybe you uh, you stop at some point somewhere behind cover, or just kind of in a maybe slightly awkward position. Like sometimes we have to recognize the fact that our our feet and lower body may not be always in uh, what we might think of as an ideal position shooting position for as far as stance, and that's okay. What 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 I'm more interested in, what I will see is, you know, my, my honest opinion is. Weaver stance is is done and gone. If you're still shooting weaver stance, I know there's people that prefer it. That's fine. You know what? If you're really serious about shooting accurately and shooting quickly, then you're not using a weaver stance. Because, like I said, this is an art for me. It's something that I study a great deal. And I have tried weaver and I have tried isosceles. And you know what? And by when I say isosceles, really what I'm talking about is Upper body is square to the target. Arms are fully extended. There are a few exceptions for me. If I am shooting and moving while I am moving to the side, like I'm walking sideways, but I am shooting over my left shoulder or or vice versa, then then I'm you know I may have to kind of cock one of my arms, you know, bend it a little bit to accommodate that shooting position. Those are exceptions. All of the times, my upper body is like the turret of a tank, and I am going to turn to wherever the threat is or to wherever the target is. Arms are fully extended, and with those arms extended, flexed, good, firm, two-handed grip on the gun, that, I, I just, I don't think you could convince me otherwise. There is there is no other positioning as far as the arms are concerned, meaning arms bent, you know, some sort of weaver or modified weaver stance. There's no other position, in my opinion, that is more controllable, faster, better at re- managing recoil than a full arm extension, you know, isosceles style stance. Is that clear? <laughs> yeah, I think it's clear. Um, <laughs> it's like I might have to talk Riley down off of a, off of a soapbox or something, but um, yeah, I don't know. That, that's clear. I just, for fun, sent you a picture you can look at. Our poor listeners won't be able to see it, but look at uh, that. I, I, I think the, the key here, and I appreciate what you said about, you know, separating the upper body from the lower body. And the key is that, that upper body is, is, is on target, it's squared forward, the, the, the arms are extended, and we're leaning forward into the gun, into the target. Um, those, those would be really key factors. I, I, I do think, too, that what you said about, you know, having some sense for, I might have to be in different positions at different times. That's really, valu- that's really valuable. That's true. All that is good. But you also need kind of your, this stance where, you know, when I'm on, if I'm presented with a threat, and I'm going to draw, and I'm going to present on that threat, like this is my stance right here, right now, boom. And and I might have to move. I might have to do a lot of things. I might have to get into a different position even, but I kind of have this core starting point and, and what yeah. that, what that should look like. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example too, by the way. Uh, imagine this, that I'm in a situation where I'm trying to create 
an opportunity for me to draw my gun and to use it. I mean, one of my favorite examples is this uh, off-duty cop in Brazil. You know, we've talked about before on the podcast where he's being robbed at gunpoint. He and his wife in front of a jewelry store on a stairwell. And he kind of blades his body so that his gun is on his right hip. And he blades his body so that his right hip is away from the threat. So they can't really see what he's doing back there. And then he he gets that that moment of opportunity where he's got the element of surprise, and he, without them knowing it, and with them out them being able to see it, he draws that gun very quickly, comes out, and begins firing. He's not in an ideal shooting position. He's not in an ideal fighting stance. So there there are those times where you you just have to accept the situation you're in, or you might intentionally put yourself. I mean, he literally he he basically sort of very casually, slowly bladed himself to create that that opportunity so that he could draw uh, unbeknownst to to these threats, to these attackers. So really good points there. Uh, the, the, the real key is I want to see as much as possible that full arm flexed extension where you're really taking control of that gun and you're not letting the gun control you. So that definitely will separate a pro from an amateur. Yep. What's next on our list, Riley? Let's see here. Shooting for no particular reason. <laughs> this could mean a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it could. So <laughs> I, I'm curious what, what you have in mind, Jacob. Well, first, when I first read it, I thought that you meant, you know, in, in a defensive situation, shooting when it's unnecessary. But, but clearly, that's not the kind of thing we generally observe at a gun range. So here's what I would take from, the, and you, you wrote that down on our little list here. So yeah. I don't know what you mean. But here's what, I, here, here's what I would say about it. And that is you get to the range and you see someone who, it, it seems that they're probably there for, for a, a purpose to train for self-defense, to practice for self-defense. They got the right kind of gun. They got a holster or whatever. And they seem kind of serious about about it, but they're not really doing anything specific. They just hang up a target and they're like, yeah, I'm going to shoot at that thing, you know? And so they put some shots down, which is better than nothing, but it doesn't seem particularly deliberate. Now, is, is that what you had in mind, Riley? That is what I had in, in mind. So I'm glad we're on the same page on this. Uh, this the example I'm thinking of is uh, back in March when you and I went out to Utah for uh, uh, we did that tour at Silencer Co., right? Mm-hmm. And did the the podcast episode with uh, Jason Schabel, uh, CEO now of Silencer Co. And that was that was a fun trip. And we did, you know, we had a lot of good business. We had to take care of while we were there. That's where our distribution center is for a lot of our products that are shipped. So we we did, took care of some business there. Uh, there was one day though where I was hanging out with our good friend Brandon, and we took a fifty caliber that Brandon, you know, had a fifty BMG, a uh, uh, Barrett uh, fifty caliber uh, semi-automatic rifle. Really awesome gun, very powerful, very loud, especially in an indoor range. And he uh, had agreed to show up at the range with this 50 caliber to demonstrate it for some Boy Scouts, you know, and let them shoot it. Those that, you know, kind of dared do it, which unfortunately, there were several of them that did not dare to shoot it. If you shoot one of those semi-auto 50s, they're really not that hard as far as recoil goes. I mean, they are hefty, they are loud, they are powerful, but they're pretty pretty manageable. So anyway, we're doing this, we're setting up the gun, the boys are having a great time, and the lane or two lanes over, uh, there's a couple, a married couple, I, they're shooting, you know, husband and wife, and I'm looking at them from time to time, and they just have a target put up, and it's, you know, kind of like a typical torso style target, you know, like a TQ-15 or something, you know. And 
they're just blazing away at it. And it's at three yards, maybe five yards, and they're just blazing away. No, no particular rhyme or reason. Uh, bullets are all over the place. There's dozens of misses, like clear, outright misses on the silhouette, you know. And I'm just like, holy cow. I mean, you, you guys just came to the range. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having fun. But it was very apparent to me that, I mean, you could argue they, they were just there strictly for the, the sake of having fun. But there was no sense of or of purpose for what they were doing there. And unfortunately, they did not improve in any way as shooters that day for that very reason. And I thought that was unfortunate. Yeah, and, and that probably would lead to a, a bigger you know, conversation later about kind of a, a training plan and an approach and how we really get the most out of our time and our ammo and our energy related to self-defense training, which which is something that that we're very passionate about as a company and as a group. But the idea is to go to the range with a plan, right? Have a sense for what we're going to do. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I want to, I don't want to pull the drill card and say, Hey, it's all about the drills. And later, you know, this episode, we're going to talk about live fire drill cards, but that's certainly a starting point that, that can help. If you say, Hey, I have a specific skill I want to work on and, or I want to identify what skills I need to work on. And so I'm going to go do a series of, of, of drills or, you know, or whateverness, and I'm going to identify some things I need to work on, or I've already identified. So I'm going to go do things that I know are designed to help me work on that specific skill. That, 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 that is purpose. That is, and it's frankly going to be a lot cheaper than just spraying bullets down range for an hour and going home. Absolutely. Yeah. You can, you can really get a lot of value out of, uh, live fire shooting and practice without spending a lot of rounds or money. Uh, you can also waste a lot of money and learn nothing. And that was, that's the point to that one. So, uh, here's one draw stroke. Mm-hmm. I can also watch someone in the way they draw and very quickly, similar to grip, I can kind of go, yeah, they're, they're an amateur. Uh, they need some help and I'm going to, you know, spend some time with them or help them. I volunteer my time, uh, fairly often at even at the range uh if i you know kind of make buddies with uh shooting you know somebody shooting in the lane next to me and kind of like hey do you want some uh tips or suggestions you know they might even make comments about hey wow you're a pretty good shooter and so one you know this is one of the things i'll see quite often is drawing if the draw stroke is and i know a lot of indoor ranges restrict drawing um, but there are some where you're able to do so and the range where i shoot at uh, with permission or if you've attended certain training courses there you can get the permission to to draw and practice in in your shooting lane uh, drawing and shooting and so two a couple of uh things that we see are fishing and bowling where instead of getting the gun you know the from its uh, point A to point B in the shortest distance possible, which would be in a straight line, you see kind of this drawing the gun up out of the holster and then just sort of dipping it down and bringing it up on target while they extend it. The other alternative is bringing the gun up kind of almost in front of your face and then sort of fishing it out there where you're kind of like making a casting motion with the hands. And those are not efficient draw strokes. Uh, They are... Definite, definite signs, in my opinion, of an amateur shooter. Uh, do you see anything like this, Jacob? Yeah, and I want to clarify something you said. For those you know who aren't familiar with these terms, bowling and fishing, and you're maybe trying to picture this in your mind, here, let me clarify. So when, when you're drawing a gun out of a holster, when you first clear that holster, at this point, there's a tendency to, as, as, as Riley kind of put it, like straight 
straight point, you know, straight line between point A and point B. And so there might be a, a desire to want to kind of take direct from holster to, you know, extended shooting position. And in your mind, you might be thinking, well, that is the, the you know, the direct, the straight line, you know, from, from position A to position B. But there's a lot of challenges with that. And so the and I'll come back to the challenges, but the correct draw stroke is to clear the holster fully and completely, pivot the gun so that it's on target, so that the muzzle is on target, and then extend toward target in the straight line between point A and B at that at that point. Um, and, and so, kind of this this bowling idea is what is what I'm I'm trying to clarify. If you clear the holster and then you go straight to extended point, right? If you t- straight line from holster to extended arms, that's the bowling we're talking about. And it's it's caused, well, there, that's one form of bowling, I suppose. You can also bowl from the compressed ready outward. But but that that's one form of bowling. And that's caused, beca- it's bad because at no given point until you're fully extended, is your muzzle actually on target, which means you can't shoot at your target until you're fully extended and you are potentially muzzling other things. So so the idea is, you know, pull clear clear the holster, pivot gun, pivot that gun and and you always describe it rightly as kind of dropping your chicken wing elbow that's sticking out in the air, right? Pivot that gun down onto target and then extend in the straight line to to the extended position. And and that that ensures that you get gun on target as fast as possible. And then you extend in a, in a straight line from point A to point B. Yeah, you're right that we do see bowling occur two different ways. A uh, common one like you just, just described is basically kind of coming out, just barely getting out of the holster and then swinging up to the target. Uh, but we do see it too, where you, you're exactly right, where it might be, they might be in a high compressed ready. And just for whatever reason, they sort of take this downward path and then up back to the target again. And uh, yeah, they're just not efficient. Um, the, there's a couple of reasons why we don't go straight from holster to the target. Number one, it's a little bit more difficult to assume your two-handed grip when you're doing that because what that means is you're having to try to get your support hand out to the grip of the gun somewhere kind of out there, out, out hanging out in the open. And that's just always less precise. And let me tell you, grip, the precision of your grip, I mean, the grip being the same way every time, uh, being correct is so important to being able to shoot well and shoot quickly that you want, you really want to assume that grip in close to the body. I mean, number one, if we're clearing a garment or like many, many teach and train, this is certainly what I teach folks when they're drawing from a holster, even if they're not clearing a garment, I teach them to get their support hand on their chest. And the reason for that is because, one, it's safe for that support hand to be there, all right? It, it's it's not going to run the risk of getting out there somewhere in the open for, for it to be muzzled by the gun as the shooting hand brings the gun up. Uh, secondly, it puts it in the appropriate position for you to make that transition of getting the second hand, the support hand, onto the grip of the gun and doing it repeatedly the same way every time. So... That there, there's really a couple, you know, th- that well, that's one big reason why we want to follow this proper draw stroke uh, process. The second reason is getting that gun out of the holster and then pivoting it towards the target in that sort of position two or position three, depending on who who you are. Uh, but basically, we're in that uh, close. I call it the close combat position. So the gun is tucked in close to the body. I have not yet assumed a two handed grip. 
that is, you might have a need to shoot from that position or shoot from that close combat position. And so that's also another reason why I think it's good to get that that position established early uh, as opposed to trying to go straight from holster out to the target. So it also forces you to break, keep the gun close to the body. So you don't run into other objects or things that might be in your environment. So pulling that gun straight up, pivoting it into that close quarter combat position, and then, and then bringing the arm up across the chest where it connects with the other hand and then extends, keeps the gun close to the body and, and, and prevents it from running into anything else. Sure. All right. Next up. Poor trigger finger discipline. Yeah, I don't think that ex- that requires a ton of explanation here, but it is a huge sign of the amateur that keeping your trigger finger out of the trigger guard and up on the side of the frame of the gun is not natural. And so it does require repetition, practice, and training. And without that repetition, practice, and training, the slightest distraction in your environment causes your brain to send control of the gun down to the subconscious and the finger will go back into the trigger guard. And that that's the sign. It's like, yep, that's a person who has, has yet to have enough repetitions to rewire the brain to do it correctly when it takes over. So it it just, you got you to do that. You got to figure this out. Like you got to do it often enough and strongly enough and I don't know, with enough repetition or enough passion to really retrain that finger to stay up out of the trigger guard and on the side of the frame. Yeah. You know, so often I I see even newer shooters where they do so good maintaining good finger, trigger finger discipline, uh, keeping it indexed along the frame of the gun until the moment that they fire. And they, they do a great job. And then after they are done shooting, I see the finger linger inside the trigger guard. And you'll hear that on the range a lot of times in courses I teach, especially with newer shooters. I'll be like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll run them through a course of fire, through a drill of some sort, and everyone will do a great job. They'll dry the holster really well. Uh, they maintain good finger discipline until they get out on target. They fire their shots. And then I see it's not everybody, but it's, a, you know, a, a few people now and then that I'll see a finger hang out there in the trigger guard. And I'm thinking, you know, I'll, I'll ask them sometimes. Are you ready to shoot again? No. Then why is your finger on the trigger? Right? And, and and that's a very common... It's similar to that very first one we mentioned about the swinging the gun down or around just sort of care, carelessly when someone is done shooting. Uh, it, it's the same sort of thing where they sort of forget about what it is they're doing. They lose a little bit of focus. Maybe the brain shuts off a little bit uh, in that regard, you know, regarding the finger and the trigger. So we got to stay focused. We got to make sure, like you said, get enough repetitions that it's learned to a point of, uh, you know, it's in the subconscious brain. So very good one there. Let's move now to, we titled this using or perhaps not using proven gear. And, so, in other words, a common one we see is someone that is using the classic Uncle Mike's holster, which is this sort of neoprene uh, pouch. It's a, really that's all it is is a pouch with a clip, a cheap plastic clip attached to it, and that is what they call a holster. And anytime I see that, I go, "You're a noob," you know. And actually, maybe not necessarily a noob because I've seen. Guys that have been carrying or shooting a long time still use some of those really lousy holsters. And I go, wow, you just, they're an amateur as opposed to professional. So it's using good gear, quality gear, proven gear. And also another thing too, when we run people through any classes we teach, sometimes we see uh, 
a person figuring out for the first time that something about the their gun or about the way it's set up or about their holster set up, they realize, wait a minute, this doesn't work very well. This is not practical. And in all honesty, I recognize that we're going to have students come through classes that discover that and have that realization. And I'd rather they discover that in a class. I'm glad they came to the course to learn that and to discover that. That's very valuable to see happen. Uh, but uh, definitely I see things just at the range or in public, uh, you know, among, even amongst friends and family, the way they're carrying or the way, you know, the, the type of gear they're using. And I go, mm, you probably haven't tested that or you, you probably haven't really run that through its paces to understand that, yeah, the pros ain't using that, bro. That, that happens to everybody uh, at some point, and that's kind of the idea, is that if you are a pro, as we're describing it in this episode, then that means you've taken those classes, or you've actually put some of these things into use, and you've discovered if it actually worked for you or not. I remember in a low-light uh, carbine class, uh, Riley, you were there, it took me just a little while into that class to realize that my light was not mounted in a place that was optimal for me. And I just hadn't done enough shooting in the dark in the, before that class to really discover that on a carbine. And so I, I had to adjust it. I moved it and like, great, problem solved, move on. But there's a lot of little things like that. And you just kind of pick that up when you're watching someone and you see them kind of run into, into something. You're like, well, yeah, you've probably never done that before. Because if you had done that before, you'd realize that that setup doesn't work. Sometimes it's a quality thing. Sometimes you see people show up and they're using you know, some ear protection or something, or, or my, I love the range bag is a huge one for me. Like I, I think that people who shoot often have a range bag and it may not be the fanciest, most expensive range bag ever, but it's a dedicated bag to that purpose. And it's obvious by looking at them that that's the only thing they use that bag for. But then I'll see other people show up and they got a backpack and they're pulling a the couple boxes of ammo out of it. And, you know, there's probably a textbook in there from school and it's, you know, it, we all have to start somewhere. Like I'm not. I, I try hard not to judge, even though I'm a very judgmental person because I'm human, and we all are. But uh, you know, people who shoot a lot have dedicated equipment for that purpose, and over time, they acquire higher and higher quality gear. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of range bags and seeing an experienced shooter on the range, you can tell. You know, when a person has, they have the range bag. And they have things in that range bag and everything in that range bag serves a specific and important or useful purpose because out of, you know, with years of experience and practice and, uh, uh, you know, they've discovered what works and what doesn't work and what they actually need and what they don't need. And so they know exactly what to have with them when they're at the range. Uh, And so, yeah, you definitely uh, do see that uh, where a pro is going to have a dedicated range bag with you know all the you know every little thing that they've learned over time they they really got to have and they really need and very little in there that's not necessary. So, yeah, good good points there, good uh good uh, discussion. So, uh, use good holsters. That's a, I mean, we harp on that all the time. Uh don't use don't use cheap crap. Don't use stuff that uh uh and I know that's hard to I mean, we're always seeing new products, too, coming out on market. Uh, and, you know, it would be easy for me to say, well, look at what the pros are using. Well, with so many new products hitting the, hitting the market all the time, uh, there's legit, you know, good quality products that are new products that are coming out all the time. Uh, I think with some time and with some practice and experience, you figure out 
what to look for and you go, yeah, I can see that that's a quality product and oh, I can see that that one over there is not so much. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of funny because Jacob, you know, we, we sell a lot of the Brave Response Holster. A lot of our listeners of the podcast are familiar with the Brave Response Holster. We get a lot of comments from people uh, about the Brave Response Holster you know, and I say a lot. I mean, yeah, it's it's a lot over the last say two years or almost two years of selling that product, uh, selling a lot of them. Uh, we get we've we've had probably you know several hundred comments where it's like that thing's junk. You know, that's a piece of crap, or you know, it it's a it's a fabric or canvas holster, and you know, an all fabric holster can't be a good holster. Um, that's that's not true at all, um, you know. And in fact, we have so many law enforcement officers, uh, military personnel, firefighters, um, detectives, special agents, security guards, and then all sorts of experienced, you know, people out there using and loving and digging the Brave Response holster. It works. Uh, yeah, it might not be the one for you personally. But uh, for many people, for many thousands, tens of thousands of people, it is a great holster. Uh, and it's one that we are big fans of and uh, that we, we use to carry in. So, I mean, a valid point that you, you know, inadvertently are, trying to, are, are making, too, is that you need to get the right gear for you. You know, just because it's the best thing that Jacob uses or that your buddy uses or that, you know, the guy you look up to or the gal or whatever – the cop ne- near next door uses that doesn't mean it's the best thing for you. So, so it does take you know work to figure out if something works for you personally or individually. And and like I'll even change out hearing protection depending on if I'm running a pistol or a carbine, right? So so I just know like oh these ears are good for this situation, but not for that one. And, and so there's just a lot of things like that that you figure out as you go. Yeah, and and that is kind of on a related point to that, but it's kind of the same thing I think. Uh, it's like that person that is using a gun that you you can just tell is not the right gun for them, but they're using it because somebody told them to. Somebody said, you know, they asked, what's the best gun? Oh, it's, you know, it's a 1911, which, I mean, hey, I love 1911s, but it's not the right gun for every shooter out there. So, yeah, you know, it's that sort of thing as well. Make sure you have the right gear, the right gear for you, gear that fits you properly and and works works for you. That that is a great point. So finally, we're now to number nine, and that is one that you were mentioning, Jacob, to me earlier. So why don't you tell folks what number nine is? Checking on the gun repeatedly. So a a pro kind of inherently understands all the time whether or not the gun is exposed if it's printing if it's showing they just you just kind of know i i think it's just a factor of time um and and maybe there, there's you know a person can shorten that learning curve uh but i i think inevitably i see newbies all the time checking on the gun all the time you know when i'm out with a buddy or a friend or somebody who they're relatively new to concealed carry and you can just see it they're, they're they put their hand back there like a is the gun still there, and B is my is my shirt still covering it, you know, or something like that. And, and there's this ongoing sense that they're just paranoid that that they might be printing or that the gun might be exposed. And I think I don't know. Given time, I don't know if there's another real good answer, but given time, pros just don't have to do that anymore. They just a they're comfortable, they're over it, they're used to it, but they also inherently just know which types of movements might expose or or print the gun so that it could be discernible or apparent by observation. And so they, they just kind of adapt accordingly and they, they do what needs to be done, but they're not in- inherently constantly checking on the gun. Yeah. There you go. I don't 
think I really have a whole lot to add to that. I mean, it is true. It is more common amongst newer CCWers. Uh, we all kind of go through that. In fact, this very point right here uh, reminds me of last week's episode where we took a couple of questions from listeners. Uh, and one of those, I was it Bert? It might have been one of the other guys too, but I think it was Bert that was asking about feeling feeling like he was printing all the time and how uh, you know he he was afraid to to be caught printing uh, because he lived in New York and you know particularly in a community where guns are not viewed in a positive light. And so while I'm on that, I mean, first of all, just to add my two bits to what you uh, said, Jacob, is try as much as possible to get away from, you know, to train yourself to not be uh, touching, you know, feeling, checking the gun all the time. Uh, I look for opportunities to do so. You know, if I got to go to the restroom, I find an opportunity uh, in a private stall just to, okay, is everything looking good, you know, where it's supposed to be? I mean, I certainly do that a lot less now than I than I used to because I'm a lot more confident uh, with my gun, with my gear and how I carry. And I uh, use good, good quality gear where I know the gun's going to stay where, you know, it needs to be at all times. But, um, going back to that question, you know, actually, uh, from last week, we answered some questions, but we got called out by another listener and his name was Aaron. And actually, as I read his comment here, I'm corrected. Bert was one of the folks we answered questions for last week, but it was Jesse from New York. So excuse me there, Jesse. And Aaron said, I've become a regular listener. You know, he loves the podcast. Uh, he made the decision to uh, get his permit and carry every day. I'm so glad to hear that, Aaron, by the way. Uh, but he said that Jesse from New York asked two questions. And it seems to me that you all only addressed one. We addressed, uh, I think, the question about, you know, being, you know, how some strategies or some ideas about not printing and not showing or maybe not. And I think a lot of what we said was, probably not being as concerned as he was because you're super hyper aware of the fact you're carrying when you first start doing it. Uh, but the second question was what to do if called out by someone. And this is the question that Aaron says we did not answer very well. So let's take that opportunity now, Jacob, if it's all right with you to answer this question. So what to do if called out by someone, what steps should a CCWer take when it happens? Yeah. So my first thought is, frankly, does this actually happen? I mean, I, I have to imagine it has happened. Um, Riley, have you ever been called out like publicly, like someone like just publicly like, hey, gun? Nope. Yeah, me neither. Now, I have been found out once, but the person did not publicly make an issue. They they quietly called 911. <laughs> and so that's a really fun story to tell. And maybe I've told it on the podcast before. But what what do you do if someone calls you out? If someone, you know, hey, he's got a gun, gun points at you and everyone's freaking out and now they're screaming going on. You know, what are some things that, that you might do in that situation? Um, a, a couple of thoughts. My first one is your hands remain critical. What your hands do is very important, both from the perspective of a, a, a potential another concealed carrier who's freaking out because he thinks he might have to shoot you because you have a gun, or the officer that might near, be nearby who's heard that there's some guy over there with a gun, um, or even just to the general public, right? If if you've been pointed out as, as being that person with the gun and your hands disappear, they go into a pocket, they go into a jacket, they go behind your back, um, that's going to increase the level of nerves, anxiety, concern, freak outness of, of for those around you. If the hands, on the other hand, go up in the air, 
uh, into almost like this defensive, like, hey, my hands are up. Like, what's what's the what's the problem? Like, it's okay. Like, I'm not going to hurt anyone kind of thing. That's going to make a huge difference. So my first thought would be watch your hands. Yeah, that's really good advice there. So, so critical that you watch your actions um, and also your language. Um, I would not try to freak out myself, try to remain calm, uh, use calming language to calm down the situation and diffuse it as much as possible. And I would probably try to extract myself from that situation as quickly as possible uh, in an appropriate manner, uh, meaning looking for the exit and getting out of there. Uh, so, I mean, honestly, that's probably what I would do. Uh, if someone, you know, was calling 911, uh, calling cops, uh, even if they're in the wrong, even if there's no, uh, nothing wrong with what you're doing, uh, but, you know, because you have a, um, you know, a citizen that just doesn't understand guns, just doesn't understand concealed carry, doesn't understand permits, things of that nature, uh, you know, I might just sit tight. And especially if they told me, don't you go anywhere, well, I'd probably go ahead and just comply with that because you know what will probably happen in most situations is cops will show up. And as you, you know, maintain a calm uh, disposition, keeping your hands visible, uh, perhaps even up in the air as, as police arrive, uh, after a conversation about what happened, what went down, uh, if you're in a jurisdiction where open carry is not an issue, you shouldn't have a problem if someone just happened to glimpse your gun or notice you were printing. Now, in a place like New York, where open carry may not be permissible, and there are other places where open carry is not allowed as well, uh, then you got a problem. Okay, and you know you could in most states that that is a misdemeanor uh, charge uh, to uh, you know unlawfully carry an open weapon uh, or open carry a weapon, and so um, you might just have to uh, face uh, you know accept the consequences of of, of that. That that is it, that is why it is important to make sure that you don't print and that you don't expose yourself. So mm-hmm. I don't know what else to say beyond that. I mean, uh, if, I, if it was a friend, I have one more thought. Yeah. Uh, one more thought for me would be: you might want to make that call. Uh, if you know, if, if if everyone's freaked out, you've put your hands in the air, you've said, "Hey, it's okay, it's okay, okay." Then you've extracted yourself. You kind of walk to an exit. You get out of there. You get in your car, whatever. You drive off. That might be an appropriate time for you to make that phone call, and 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 you might just simply say, "Hey, you know what? I'm calling because I I was just in such and such place." And I'm a licensed concealed carrier and somebody I think must have seen my gun because there was some screaming and panicking and they pointed at me and you guys might be getting a call, but you know, I, I, there's no mal, you know, I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody. Like I, I'm, I have a permit and I'm happy to, to answer any questions or comply or whatever. So it, it, make, make your best decision. I'm not saying that, like always do that. Like I'm, I, we're going to get hate mail. Someone's like, Jacob, you moron. I live in New York. Like I don't want to set myself up for prosecution. Uh, okay. Like I, I get it, but, but make, you know, just consider that as an option. It might not be a bad idea to make, be the one to make the phone call. It's a weird thing about cops. They almost always believe the person who calls them first. Yeah, that is true. Uh, so there you go. I, I don't know what else to really say. I mean, if it was a family or friend member, a family member or friend that called me out, Hey, I noticed your gun. Uh, that could be because they know you and they know you're carrying and they're looking, you know, like I've, I've had friends sort of like tease me about that. Well, Hey, I, I noticed your gun. Well, yeah, you know, you know, I'm carrying you idiot, but you know, 98% of people out there in public, uh, don't know that for a fact. 
and won't even know what to look for in the first place. Uh, so, I, you know, frankly, in most places, now I definitely would advise caution in jurisdictions where open carry is not uh, is not allowed. But in most places, I would not worry as much about printing uh, because, I mean, I read an article, uh, it was a while back, and I thought it was a pretty interesting article where a couple of dudes tested this idea. I mean, like they, they tried to, well, first they walked in through a mall or something with uh, kind of their normal rigs and setups with their guns carrying concealed. And, you know, they that was kind of like their control. And they looked around and no one was taking notice of them. Then they did the same thing with very, you know, uh, with bigger guns and like outside waistband holsters, um, in some cases they made they made efforts to make sure that the butt of their gun or something became exposed as they leaned over uh, an object, and they filmed it and looked around and did not notice anyone uh, really taking notice. And and in some cases their gun was very much in the open. Uh, so the fact is, people aren't as observant as what we are always telling you as listeners to be. You need to be observant. You need to be aware of your surroundings. And that's because we are sheepdogs. 98% of people out there are sheep and they just don't notice or they don't care. Yeah. Now, another thought is uh, I was just going to look for the episode number. You might check out um, episode number 92 if you want to talk about some more. This is an episode where we basically, you know, the title is Myth or Fact, CCW or Mistakes, Another CCW for Bad Guy. And so a lot of the principles in that episode might apply to this question because we talk a lot about, you know, how to, you know, be identifiable as the good guy as opposed to a bad guy in a, in a, in, a, in an encounter. So anyway, something, something that might have some application. Yep. Yeah. Good thoughts. Well, there you go. Uh, there's some links in today's show's resources. Uh, if you're looking in the show notes, you'll see a, uh, uh, a heading called resources and, yeah, for additional information, for articles and things, that's usually what we'll post there is additional articles that are uh, hopefully of help to you. So you can check out some links in the resources today uh, where you'll find some of that. Today's episode is brought to you by Pig Lube Rifle and Handgun Cleaning Kit. This is a 30-piece cleaning kit. Hopefully by now you've heard about my favorite gun lubricant, Pig Lube. You may have also heard about their recent launch of PLC. That's their Pig Lube Cleaner, a gun cleaning solvent. Now you can get Pig Lube and PLC together with a complete handgun and rifle cleaning kit. With quality brass brushes, jags, loops, and cleaning swabs, this 30-piece kit has everything you'll need to thoroughly clean all your guns, including shotguns. So it is titled the Rifle and Handgun Cleaning Kit, but I don't know if you noticed, Jacob, but actually it's for everything. Shotguns, handguns, rifles. It's a complete, you know, comprehensive cleaning kit with quality components, And best of all, it has our favorite pig lube and PLC cleaner included in it. Check it out at concealedcarry.com and use the coupon code PODCAST10, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-1-0, to save 10%. And today's episode is also brought to you by Live Fire Drill Cards. These revolutionary training aids from Burnett are the slickest drill cards we've ever seen, which is why we partnered with the creator to bring them to you. These cards will walk you through dozens of fundamental shooting drills that will help you shoot better, faster. These cards list all the requirements to shoot each drill, detailed parameters, and give you multiple fields to record multiple runs through the drill so you can track your progress. I can promise you will see measurable improvement towards becoming a better shooter over time. Check it out, and you can get today 
a three-pack, a special three-pack of the Live Fire Drill Cards on ConcealedCarry.com using the link in the show notes. Hope that you'll check those out. They're pretty cool. Now on to Picks of the Week. Jacob, what's your pick? This week, my pick is a book, uh, The Power of Habit, which I read like in 2000 and... Jeez, like 2012, maybe 2013. Anyway, this was like the best-selling nonfiction book on like four different bestseller lists for like three years in a row or some ridiculous long time. It's a big deal book. You probably would recognize the cover if you saw it. It's yellow um, and it says The Power of Habit. And Charles Duhigg, it was the first book he wrote. He's written a second one since, which is not nearly as good. And uh, he's a New York Times staff uh, writer or something like that. But this book is phenomenal and I think it has some application to all things and certainly shooting as well. But it really breaks down the psychology and the science behind how habits are formed, how they're maintained, how they're changed. And it's really phenomenal. I learned a ton about the brain and about psychology and physiology from this book. And I would encourage you to check it out. Awesome. My pick this week is the Blackhawk single mag case double stack. I don't know. That's that's the listing as it came off the website. Uh, this is just a little spare mag. Uh, I call it a pouch, even though it's not really so much a pouch. But this is a mag pouch. Uh, it's a polymer mag pouch. This fits. Here's what I like about this. It's from Blackhawk. It's one I use all the time because it's so simple to use and it's so versatile. Uh, so... You know, when something is easy and it's versatile, it tends to get used a lot by me because I like things that fit a lot of different use cases and situations um, and it's just easy to use. And so what I like about this Blackhawk double stack mag pouch is it fits pretty much any double stack mag, okay? Whether it's 9mm, 40, even 45, as long as it's double stack, the way this thing is designed, it's going to fit. And that is awesome. Because a lot of times mag pouches are very specific to a certain caliber, and in some cases, certain you know specific brands and specific calibers within brands. And so you you might have a mag pouch for one specific magazine, but it doesn't work for any other magazine, and that's fine. But this one's just so versatile because I can use it uh, pretty much with with about any gun that I'm carrying, as long as it's double stack. Now they also make a single stack version of these that that also works very well. Um, it's made it's it's intended to be uh, uh, outside the waistband. Um, if you really wanted to, you could use it IWB as well. It's, it's not really designed that way, but it's it's reversible as well. So you can flip the magazine in or flip it around in the mag pouch. Uh, it works both ways. Uh, you'll see me using these in a lot of the training videos that we do. Uh, it, it really is one of my favorite mag pouches. It's so fast to deploy and very reasonably priced. I think they're like 17 bucks on Amazon. So if you're interested, go check it out. That's a great, that's a, that's a glowing review right there, Riley. Well, it, of course, you know, I, I'm going to give glowing reviews to products I actually use and like, and I've been using this thing for years. Long time. Yeah. Uh, up next, uh, so I'll go first, and I've got coming up here this weekend my a- anniversary. So I've been married. How long have you been married, Riley? I don't know if I want to give that information out. <laughs> <laughs> I already know the answer. I've been married so, uh, 12 years. Yep. So, yeah, pretty exciting. Congrats, Yeah, dude. 12 years, four kids later. Uh, you know, hope that there's many more years to come. I don't know about many more kids, but many more years. <laughs> 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 so how about you, Jake? What's up? 
Well, my anniversary is also coming up soon, and we are taking a vacation uh, in advance of, of the actual date. Uh, we're dumping the kids off at the grandparents' house, and we are getting out of getting out of Dodge. So we're excited. We do, we try and do this every once in a while, and uh, we're we're just pumped to hit the road and you know spend some time without without the kids. Not that we don't love them. Very cool. I dig it. I I wish I could say that my wife and I were going on a similar trip, but we're not. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, we'll probably be laying low here. And I, I do have uh, something planned uh, for um, the evening of our anniversary and we'll, we'll have a uh, you know, nice meal and do a couple other things. But so uh, actually I have a little, I'm, I'm thinking about taking our paddle boarding and it's something that neither one of us has tried. So that's, that's what I was thinking is paddle boarding and then a nice meal. So I think it'll be a hit because I think she'll really get a kick out of it. So there you have it. Uh, that wraps up today's episode. Uh, as usual, if you haven't already, we hope that you'll go find us on Facebook. You can just type in Concealed Carry, find the uh, little hexagonal uh, icon uh, that is our brand, concealedcarry.com. Uh, find our Facebook page, like it. Uh, follow us there. Lots of great stuff to, to find on our page there. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, we are on as well. You can find us pretty much using the same method. And also, if you'd like to contact us besides messaging us through the various social media platforms, feel free to contact us through our website using the contact form. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to get your questions uh, or if you've got comments about the episodes, uh, anything. Let us know. We love hearing from podcast listeners. Thanks so much for all you do for us and for supporting us in this endeavor. And we hope that uh, we can are able to continue uh, providing value to you, our listeners. So with that, I think it's time to sign off, Jacob. Signing off. Indeed. And so with that, this is Riley with the Concealed Carry Podcast. Take care, everybody. This is uh, something we I've been making more of a thing. So I hope that you'll train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.